What constitutes a healthy vagina? How do you keep your genitals as youthful as possible? And how do you nourish the reproductive essence in you? Hello, welcome to the Vital Beta Show. My name is Dylan Smith. I'm an Ayurvedic practitioner and holistic health educator based in Sydney, Australia, but spreading the ancient wisdom that is being increasingly proved by modern science all around the world via this podcast platform, via my Instagram, Vital Veda, via my newsletter, via online courses. And today we are speaking about one of my greatest passions is, of course, gynecology, women's health, and specifically about the vaginal microbiome, about just in general, the vagina and the female genital tract, reproductive tissue, um, which is a huge, huge concept in Ayurveda, a huge part of Ayurveda is the reproductive tissue. It's really the essence of the physiology is reflected in the reproductive tissue for women. That's the, you know, the vagina and ovaries and fallopian tubes and all, all the eggs. And for the men, it's the, you know, it's the semen and the testicles, the penis. So this is, especially for the women, it's the seat of creative intelligence. It's such a powerful aspect of their biology and we just get to explore some of it now in this episode with, with Angela Heap, who's she's a nutritionist with over 12 years of experience in fertility and pregnancy. She runs a successful London-based clinic and works internationally with clients. She lectures for various colleges and she regularly collaborates with urologists, gynecologists in the UK. And her area of special interest is multiple miscarriages, IVF, genetics, PCOS, and thyroid health. And, you know... I share a similar passion, you know, my, I do treat a lot of infertility in my clinic as does Angela. And I loved whether it's that or it's even better is the preconception where they're taking conscious steps to conceive and they're consciously before conceiving, improving the health of their seeds. You can say we call it in, in the Vedas Bija, their seed, his sperm and her ovum. Whatever the state of those seeds is at the time of conception will influence that human being that is about to be born to the world very strongly. It will not only influence that human being when they are a baby or a child, their health, but even when they're 50 years old, their medical condition or their medical state or disease could be due to the seed, could be due to the health of the mother and father at the time of conception and before conception. So that is why for me, preconception and fertility is one of my greatest passions because if we can intervene then, it is the best preventative medicine because it's literally preventing before even that human is born into the world. We're dealing at the level of the seed. So you know, there's so much more of this in, in the Ayurvedic view for that. You know, I just suggest you you listen to the other podcasts we have on the Vital Veda podcast, episode 48, Menstrual Health, Fertility, PCOS and Amenorrhea with Lara Bryden. We have Ayurvedic Fertility, The Misaligned Superwoman and Juicy Radiance with Heather Grish. And that's episode 43. We've got one on all the contraceptive methods where we, not all, but a lot of them, we look at all the contraceptive methods and we just show all about that the pros the cons and you can make your empowered decision on what contraceptive method you want and that's episode 13 of the vital Veda podcast your guide to birth control methods the control hormones with when in addition to that you got to check out my friend's podcast which is an amazing podcast the maha soma podcast where me and laura pool talk about in episode five ayurveda for menstruation preconception and conscious conception so that is a lot and that's really weak if you want to hear more of the Ayurveda view there. So 
check out all those episodes. And if you missed all those, you can either rewind, listen again, or check out the show notes. Every episode, we have show notes, which talks about what we have. It's the resources. And as well as that, it is sometimes elaborating more on what we talk about. Like even in this episode, when we speak about the bacteria that is in the microbiome, the microorganisms that are in the vagina, we go, I, I list some more and, and what they're doing, which species we go more into, you know, or how to bathe the vagina and you know this this is what this episode's about is you know how do you how do you how much pubic care should you have how much lubrication should a vagina have what's the ph level should it be acidic should it be alkaline what bathing methods should you do should you be doing douching you know what are the ideal parameters for a healthy vagina for healthy hormones reproductive and general health so this is what we go into and I just want to shout out to my teachers, the Raju family, who have formulated this medicated ghee, which I've sent to Angela. And I just got a message from her the other day of how she's loving it. And it's a medicated ghee, which you put inside the vagina and you can either put it on a tampon or put it in cotton and insert it into your vagina overnight or during meditation or during a a time where you're relaxing or in a treatment or, or just relaxing in general for a couple hours or even overnight. And it's a medicated ghee which nourishes the microbiome, balances the pH so that it can have the proper pH of acid so that it will keep intruders out and just general nourishing it, nourishing that and that essence. And, you know, there's so many other, other herbs we can do and certain smoking methods to there to, to, to purify it and keep it clean and um, certain sits baths to make it more youthful and fertile and get rid of any discomfort. So there's so many Ayurvedic therapies we do for the vagina. And for that, you know, I don't speak about them a lot. It's more during consultations, which you can do a consultation with, with me online. Uh, it's primarily I'm now doing them online in addition to my Sydney clinic. And for that, you just got to go to vitalveda.com.au and, and hit the contact page, book an online consultation with me. Optimize your reproductive essence, whether you are planning to have it in the future, a child, or you're past the childbearing years, still the state of your reproductive organs, your genital tract is so important to being that seat of creative intelligence for you, for not only your mental and subtle creative energy, but your physical energy. It is determined with that reproductive essence, that genital strength. So this is a huge topic in Ayurveda. It's one of the eight branches of Ayurveda. It's huge. Vajikarana, aphrodisiac therapy, and not just aphrodisiac to have sex and good sex and high libido and last long, but aphrodisiac therapy for strength, for that underlying, we call it ojas, that vitality and hormonal aspects. So many, so many things to it. So I'm going to get into this. If you appreciate this show, please leave a review. Share it with a friend. Share it on Instagram. Tag me and tag Angela, at Fertility Nutritionist. And... Check out the other episodes on, on our show. I mean, we've got so many good stuff in 2020. All right, my dear friend, enjoy. Angela, it's wonderful to have you on my podcast. One of the few people with a accent from the UK. So I'm excited about that, I must say. <laughs> we've had a few. But the way we like to start off this podcast is, you know, in, in Ayurveda, daily routine is very important particularly the morning routine. And yeah, I'd just like to ask, what did you do this morning? What was your daily routine? What was your morning routine? And you can share any level of detail that you wish. Well, my morning routine isn't really, um, I'm not necessarily a great morning person. So I generally tend to get up and just have a shower. And sometimes I go for a run. Sometimes 
I just kind of take it easy really this morning because it's Monday morning after the weekend. It was just a, a fairly easy, breezy routine really of just getting up and having a shower and, and kind of starting the day because it's fairly early for me this side. Um, mm. So, you know, I, I don't have breakfast for probably a couple of hours before I get up. I'd maybe do some exercise if I need to a couple of times a week. And then I start my day, really. I start looking into client emails and, you know, straight off the bat, really. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. Nice thing to start with, with the knowledge and engaging with patients and yeah, in that field. So, you know, today I'd like to explore to some extent uh, a wonderful part of the body that we are both passionate about. And that is the vagina and, and extended, actually, the more specifically, the reproductive system of a woman particularly. And by the way, this is very important for all men. And I encourage you fellas to, to listen because this is for any man who wants to respect a woman and, uh, you know, also commune with them towards not only reproduction if that's one thing, but, you know, not only these reproductive organs are not only for reproduction, but you know, in Ayurveda, we see them as the seat of creation and not just creation of a human, a future, but the, the seat of creative intelligence is such a powerful part of the human body, according to Ayurveda, which we call Shukra. So I would just like to hear before we kind of get into the details of, of some aspects of that, why are you, I guess, so drawn to the reproductive system? I guess from my background, really, I've always been interested in hormones. Um, I think it's what kind of led me and drew me towards doing nutritional therapy in the first place. And I've also just started doing a course in herbal medicine as well, just to kind of add to what I'm doing on top of that. I just find the particularly the female reproductive situation so so fascinating that you know we can do these amazing things you know I think from the first moment I had my period I was sold you know I wasn't one of those people <laughs> that said oh it's the curse it's terrible then um wanted to know more really and I guess I often think to myself I don't know why it took me so long to get here because i did my first degree you know at university when I was sort of 18 19 and then took me a while did jobs here and there working in, you know, the charitable sector and, you know, sort of NGOs, that kind of thing. And then I kind of came to working around fertility and, and that area. And I just, I just fell into it really. I absolutely loved it. And I think it's just been one of those things that I've been fascinated in from, from day one and, and continues to fascinate me to this day, really, Dylan. There's something mm -hmm. happening all the time that is a new discovery that, you know, you're always learning and you're always kind of finding new things out about the reproductive system that you didn't know about. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. It's, 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 oh, it's, it's the universe. They call it, you know, in the Vedas, they kind of nickname it the Yoniverse, Yoni mm. being the name for that area. Yeah. Uh, there's so much, you know, within the dynamics of it. And it's very beautiful to hear that you were perhaps positively, you know, positively honoring your menstrual cycle when you initially got it, as opposed to a lot of women, the, a lot of girls these days who get it and are either scared or repulsed by it. Mm. So that's beautiful. I think Hopefully that's down that to the the medical kind of approach we have and the allopathic approach to medicine, you know, that we can turn something off if there's pain or if there's something, you know, scary about it. And I think we've kind of lost the art of embracing pain and understanding that a little, or even if there isn't pain, just being inquisitive, you know, I suppose in, in 
normal circumstances, if you bleed, that's seen as, you know, something quite scary and something you need to attend to. But I think we obviously know a lot more about it now than we did sort of a couple of hundred years ago. And I think the fact that we've got things like, you know, the the oral contraceptive pill and that's offered to women. I know a lot of my peers, when I was having this discussion with a friend the other day, were talking about how, you know, they were offered that as soon as their periods started, you know, at 14 and 15. And I think I was lucky in a way that, you know, my mother was never on the oral contraceptive pill. So it didn't really occur to her to actually, you know, send me off to the doctors to do that. So, you know, I'm kind of a little bit older than than most people really with you know, some of the clients that I see. So my mum's kind of part of the baby boom generation. So, uh, yeah, and uh, it was just a fascinating thing to me to kind of understand when I first started my cycle, what could happen. You know, I think nowadays there are, you know, mums that are actually having parties for girls their daughters you know when they have their periods and I think when I was younger it was still seen as you know quite taboo you know something you didn't discuss I know you know you couldn't actually go out and talk about this amongst you know your male counterparts really at school and you just hid your fact that you were menstruating really so I think it's a it's a really fascinating area for you know for people but I think it's just a shame now that it's still in that that sort of bracket where you can turn this off, you know, by going on the pill and then turn it back on again if you want to have a baby. But, you know, it's not as easy as that really, as we know, with all of the problems that I have with seeing my clients as well. Mm. Uh, that's two things like, that's so beautiful about the having the parties. And that's something I'm, you know, going to be doing more on this podcast. We have one coming up with an Ayurvedic doctor, Nidhi Padya, and she's from India and just learning all the, you know, the ritual and the ceremony around that and what would happen when they got the period, what are the, you know, rituals you can do, which, you know, some these days some people can interpret them as like, oh, this is, you know, demonizing it. But really what's, what's the essence behind the recommendations to do during your period and especially during the menarche, during the first period, that's a, a real big rite of passage for women. So there's a lot mm-hmm. of wisdom that I think a lot of the West could learn from and that are becoming more and more receptive and by the way i i treat a lot of infertility and see a lot of it in my clinic and that's due to probably my teachers they're specialists in fertility and see a lot of it as well and one of the reasons i see a strong cause of infertility is the history of being on contraceptive drugs or or even devices do you experience similar things with that as well yeah absolutely i mean i probably say 80% of the clients that I see have polycystic ovarian syndrome and they're, you know, having problems getting pregnant in the first place, getting their cycles going. And often this can be pill induced as well. So they didn't have any kind of symptoms necessarily before they went on the pill, but they did go on the pill maybe you know, in their late teens, early 20s, and then came off it. And, you know, they are then diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome from the allopathic side of things. And that has generally caused the body to, you know, not do what it's supposed to do in terms of having a regular menstrual period every single month. So I do see a lot of people who have come to me. In fact, it's quite rare, actually, to see somebody who hasn't been on the pill and that hasn't caused some major problems because we go into a lot of detail about that, asking them whether 
you know, there was a reason for going on it in the first place? And then also, was there a reason for them to come off it prior to actually trying for pregnancy? And often they'll have had two or three breaks coming off that because A, they had may have had something like migraines or they may have had sort of low libido or major problems with you know, other things there in in their life, generally mood, things like that. And we kind of, we explore that and understand, you know, why they went on in the first place. And often finding out what the root issue was before going on the pill is often useful for me as a practitioner to kind of work out how we take it forward once they come off that and how long it's taken them for normalising their menstrual periods once they do. So I do, like you, Dylan, have a lot of people that have you know, many issues with medication and when people come off that, what happens to the body? And sometimes it takes them a short amount of time to kind of get back to their normal flow of things in the body. But I've had many clients where before they came to me, it was sort of two and three years before they'd actually had a period. And, Mm. you know, the doctors had tried all sorts of things as well, you know, bringing on a bleed, using medication themselves, you know, so it's, it's a fascinating kind of thing to stop something. But often the other side of things is a lot more difficult to bring things back into balance again. And even if they are bleeding, they still may have problems conceiving, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to go more into the pathology a bit of what you mentioned. So the PCOS is predominantly an excess of androgens, male hormones, right? Mm, Absolutely, yeah. Would that come from when you're not taking the pill, you're not ovulating? Sorry, when you're taking the pill, you're not ovulating. Ovulating is not only for having a baby, but that's for your shakti, we call like that divine femininity. And when Mm. that's gone, then the PCOS could occur. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them, it comes from, you know, family health, and this is triggered by the environment. Once the, you know, menstrual cycle is starting when they're younger, they obviously start to eat the wrong things, and this can actually trigger the PCOS initially. And Mm. instead of thinking, well, maybe it's the environment that has triggered this or what I'm eating or my stress levels or my sleep or anything like that, they automatically go to the doctors and the doctors say, well, let's treat you by, you know, putting you on the pill. You don't necessarily need to worry about any issues with this until you get pregnant or still, you know, if you're trying for pregnancy. So it's often that they may have just needed a couple of years to balance out the cycle a little. And maybe, sadly, lots of young women don't have advice from people in our field to help them to understand and embrace this period of time and, you know, use that to understand themselves a little bit more. Um, And then going on the pill can actually, you know, exacerbate this, as you said, androgen issue in the body too much male hormones and it can you know upset the balance of of lots of things really in the body insulin obviously is a major driver for that and obviously that comes from food and environment so you know it's about treating them with exactly the reason it happened in the first place looking at diet and lifestyle really rather than saying let's bring on a bleed with medication and let's kind of track that and if it doesn't work again we'll put you back on the pill and then come off it again you know it's it's a very kind of unusual approach to looking at an issue i'm um, turning it off to then turn it back on again i guess that's the world we live in really but for me pcos often is triggered by going on the pill when maybe they just needed to balance the hormones out for a couple of months to see where that went really beautiful And I'm excited for you to explore herbalism more and use that 
in cases of like amenorrhea and because I also see quite a lot of amenorrhea, absence of menstruation and quite successful with uh, coupling herbal medicine along with basically de-stressing and removing stress from the physiology. Yeah, I'm really, really excited about it too. It's, uh, it's fascinating. I've kind of done my first semester with it now and it's, Mm. um, it's a fast tracked course because I've been a nutritional therapist for so long now, but it's absolutely fascinating. And it was my first love, really. I kind of got persuaded to do nutritional therapy when I went to the college to sign up and I'm kind of going back to it. I guess that's what happens, doesn't it? When you have, um, a journey that still needs to continue, you definitely go back to it. Mm. be sure to check out some ayurvedic herbalism as well they have yes absolutely i think it's also part of the course as well so i've seen it on Mm. the curriculum so i will be studying that so i'm quite excited about that there's a lot of herbs which which are now becoming more popular a lot of ayurvedic herbs are becoming more popular in the west yeah absolutely and you mentioned diet during the early menstruating years or just in general before preconception even as a girl you know determining the future what about do you also consider specifically diet during the menstruation, like during the actual period, the period bleed? Yeah, absolutely. So with my clients, I have a very kind of set, specific, tailored program for them. And if they do have, um, you know, a very strong bleed or if they don't have a bleed, it's about working around, you know, giving them the right nutrients to support that to happen. And I think sometimes it may take a month or two to kind of get that back. But it's about, you know, nourishing foods during their menstruation and making sure also that they're honoring their body and not kind of doing too many intense things really both mentally and physically so it's you know as a nutritional therapist you're working around diet and environment and looking at all of those things to help people to understand their body a bit more and if there is a situation where there is no bleed it's down to balancing the hormones out and then also working within that to nourish the body in the early stages of the period and making sure they don't do anything too strenuous you know lots of nourishing broths there and also you know making sure they're having you know lots of food that supports their menstrual cycle really and they may need more depending on whether they have heavy periods or not when it comes back or whether they you know have a lighter period and encouraging that that just gives me an indication of where to go next month depending on what their menstrual cycle is and I use that as part of my consultation every time I speak to them you know it's a it's a bodily system for me that's very valuable in terms of giving me information to understand what's happening in the prior month it's beautiful I I totally agree with all that and one thing I usually add to that is also just easy to digest food because the digestion I guess the blood is you know, in the pelvic floor, not as much in the digestive tract. And we just kind of want to, as well as reducing strain and stress, like you've said, and resting, you know, also digestive strain and stress, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's important. I think taking the onus off lots of different areas and when you are Mm -hmm. on your menstrual cycle, it's making sure that you don't sort of overburden yourself with too many other things. It's, you know, it's really common practice that where, People don't really understand their cycle very much and they're eating all the wrong things and they are kind of sort of pushing their body in ways that they should. And I think even myself, I did that for many years, just thinking, oh, it's fine. 
well, I'm a little bit tired, but I'm sure I can push through it. And I think that's the general approach to things, I think, in the West, isn't it? You know, go hard or go home. And I think that's that's a the wrong message sometimes because you have to look at what stage you are in your cycle, really, in terms of the energy levels. After the period, generally, you will have a lot more energy because you're in your follicular phase there. So you are building towards ovulation and then your energy generally tends to peak around ovulation. And after that, you're in your luteal phase, which means that you do need to take a little bit more time to relax and to nurture. And you generally feel a little bit less sociable and you want to stay at home and, and take it easy, really. And often things like runs, I know particularly for my situation and many other than my clients find that, you know, running or doing any form of exercise past ovulation can be a little bit more strenuous. And that's because your body is preparing for, you know, if you are pregnant, you're you know, sort of working through the body and supporting that pregnancy, or if you're not, you're preparing for, you know, the next period really, and particularly the final couple of days before you actually go towards the period and your womb starts shedding again. So it's about sort of listening to your body and understanding that, you know, you are working through a cycle and it's a cycle of energy as well as, you know, sort of bodily functions as well. Mm, beautiful. Okay, so let's let's talk about the microbiome. Pretty hot science recently. I mean, not not very recent. It's been hot science for some time. And you know, when we think of microbiome, most people think of the gut, but it's not only the gut. In fact, the skin is another big one, which I'm a big proponent of enhancing skin mm-hmm. physiology, not just for luster and to look good, but for you know that has influence on our lymph, on our blood, and our skin is like a protective organ, and so many things. And then the stomach even also, and then and the urinogenitary tract, and specifically, you know, the vagina microbiome. And yeah, I'd love to to hear, yeah, just tell us about the microbiome the vagina before that as well. Like, I just want to also say, like, microbiome is such hot science because, you know, depending on the science you look at, there's different views, but like we are mostly bugs and we are, you know, perhaps more microbiome than human, our cells yes. and DNA. Absolutely. And I think there's that great book, isn't there? You know, 10% human. We're more, Mm. we're more kind of bacteria than we are anything else. And I think it's all about, you know, orchestrating that and keeping them all happy. You know, I often say it's a bit like a family wedding. We're all kind of Mm. related in some way and it's making sure that everything goes according to plan, really. And I think things get out of hand. That's when, you know, there's problems all around. So, you know, for me, that the area of, of the vaginal microbiome, just became such a fascinating area for me. Again, looking at where the twists and turns are happening in science, really, and and how we can kind of look at another area which can determine maybe whether there is, you know, a successful conception or not. And I think we also, like you said, we've been looking at the gut microbiome for many, many years. But I think since about 2012, this has really started to kind of take off in terms of the trials and looking at this area to see whether there is, you know, some sense in the fact that it can determine whether there is a successful pregnancy or not, even around IVF as well. I think, you know, when we look into this a bit further, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that as well. And the kind of whys and wherefores behind whether, you know, working around this area can actually help support people who go for IVF and and those kind of assisted methods as well. 
you know, it's it's such a fascinating subject because it encompasses so much, really. We just think of the, the vagina as a, a small, elastic, muscular canal, you know, which provides lubrication, pleasure, all those kind of things. But actually, it's the opening to the gateway, really. And it's such an important thing to have all your ducks in a row when it comes to that, really, because if if that's not protected well, it's the gateway to, you know, the cervix it's the gateway to obviously the uterus and that's where once the mucus plug is formed after seven weeks if we have something in there that is trapped essentially it can cause sort of proliferation if you for want of a better word and we can then start to get some more issues really with bacteria growing inside the womb which can affect the baby and that's just you know if there is a possibility of of implantation there's there's a lot more that can happen in that meantime really so if we take it back a notch a little you know what i use generally as a practitioner to work out if there is an issue generally around that is i will look at the vaginal microbiome through a swab to actually see where there may be problems with other areas in the reproductive tract. And we know, for instance, there are issues with sexually transmitted infections. And those things are tested at IVF if you go down that route. But not many people actually do lots of testing prior to actually working through whether they're going to start trying for a family and seeing if everything is right in that area. And that's what I would always say is one of the most important things because, you know, as a female, you know you're at different points in your cycle, depending on what's happening in the vagina, really, particularly things like cervical fluid or cervical mucus, as some people call it. You can see that that is generally a time that's telling your body that you're actually going to be entering a fertile period. But there is sort of lubrication issues. There's different things happening um, in the vagina. And I think one of the first protocols really for ensuring that the vagina is healthy and can actually encourage the right type of bacteria to grow there is the pH. So the pH of the vagina is one of those, you know, sort of seminal things right at the beginning of the process. And that can often dictate what kind of bacteria is actually able to thrive in that area, which then can get further up from the vagina into other areas in the reproductive tract. So if you generally think about the rest of the body and I'm sure you probably know this as well, Dylan. Lots of people started out thinking in health that we need to be more alkaline and that's how we need to be as a human being to improve things. But actually, acidity is quite important for keeping back disease. And the vagina generally needs to be at a certain point in terms of acidity on the pH scale between sort of about 3.4 through to about sort of 4.8 ideally around sort of 4.2 to 4.5 really is the best kind of acidity for encouraging the right kind of bacteria to grow. And likewise, you know, the vagina has a specific set of bacteria, like the gut will have the most bacteria in the body to generally play around with and work with. The vagina has probably about similar amounts as the mouth in terms of good and bad bacteria. And it has a specific set of bacteria in there as well to ensure that you know the right conditions are there to support health and generally 
the lactobacillus, and I guess the name is given away really there in, in the title, will help to ensure whether there is a pH there of, of a lower amount. So it's going to be much more acidic because obviously lactic acid is going to encourage that more kind of acidic type of bacteria. And that will ensure that the health of, of the vagina is is well balanced. And it's all about the kind of percentages really of those particular family. And we have four generally that are important to look at when we are going into the depths and understanding, you know, the nitty gritty of the vagina in the lactobacillus. And we've got to be looking at one of the major bacteria there to dictate that and support a healthy vagina is lactobacillus crispatus. So they all have obviously the name and the genus and, and the species there. And that particular one will ensure whether there is, you know, a healthy acidity and also, you know, how high the amount is in, in the lactobacillus family there. And also I kind of like to call this particular bacteria the, the matriarch of the vagina. And I think if this is well supported and maintained, you're going to be, you know, setting the scene for other members of the family, really, in the lactobacillus. And diversity is key here. So making sure you have a good amount of the other family members, the Gensini, the Gasseri, and also the Inners. But the um, the Inners or Inners actually can be often synonymous with potentially having an issue with, you know, an imbalance of bacteria and encouraging things like bacterial vaginosis there. Something that a lot of women actually have had over their life, but are unaware whether that's healthy or not. And again, it goes back to not talking as, you know, sort of friends or as family members about the actual happenings of the vagina, whether the discharge there or what's happening, the colour of that, whether that's healthy or not, and also the smell as well, because sometimes that can be an indication that the bacterial load in the vagina is particularly out of balance. So we're all about making sure that the good bacteria of the lactobacillus family, those four members, are in the right sort of percentage-wise and ensuring there is a bit more diversity there because you may also have good pH, a good level of lactobacillus crispatus, but there may not be other species in the vagina that have been swabbed and tested for that are showing up. And that can almost open the door to lots of other bacterial issues that may, you know, cause some problems with the bacterial vaginosis, for instance. There's a couple of them there that actually can indicate that, you know, that can be a problem later on down the line. And bacterial vaginosis per se doesn't necessarily cause issues with pregnancy or implantation, but it may do in some people if they have a, a particularly unhealthy level of fat that can cause problems. It can also be, you know, the precursor often to something like candida, which some of us are aware of in relation to the species name there with thrush. But I think more than anything, the other thing that dictates what the level of species in there is also the hormone estrogen. So often if we have good levels of estrogen in the body, in the vagina, and it's getting to where it needs to with the uterus and the uterine lining and growing the follicles and also the vagina in terms of the lubrication, we can see that certain species will grow there and will be happy and everything is working well. But if there is lower levels, we often find that 
that that gives rise to certain bacteria that can be problematic and can cause some issues later on down the line. So we can often see with a swab as well at what stage we're at sometimes in the perimenopause and also nearer to menopause because we can see that with the absence of estrogen, the pH generally will start to go a little bit higher often. And there may also be signs that that's happening prior to you actually, you know, going to the doctors and understanding that if you're working with a practitioner like myself or someone understands that, you can see, you know, where you are in that life cycle as a female and also whether there's any dysbiosis really um, in the vagina, which could, you know, we're talking about bacterial vaginosis causing an issue, but there are other things in there, other pathobionts or opportunist bacteria that can cause problems with implantation. So, you know, there are things like urea plasma as well, which can be a major issue and can cause in some studies some issues with second or third trimester miscarriage. There's also some other bacteria like, for instance, many of you may have heard of also the group B strep as well, which you tested for in pregnancy in the second and third trimester. If that one is out of balance, is higher than it should be, that can cause issues with bacteria in the placenta and often the amniotic sac. And I've had a client with this recently. She was tested and, and had strep B at quite a high level and she's expecting twins and both of the actual amniotic sac had less fluid in there. And we've done a program now of working through that, building that up again and improving things. And the fluid is actually now beginning to increase a little because of some of the things we've done to help support that. Beautiful. Another reason to enhance the diversity and health of your overall vaginal Mm. microbiome. Yeah, and this swabbing to test for it, is that to get you know the results that you're looking for to see an overview of the family as you called it yes is that yes, easily available all around it is actually um i use a lab in the uk and they send internationally all around the world and as long as we can get that back within a certain amount of time it's basically a large swab that you just send back in in the post you do it you know whatever point in your cycle you feel comfortable with usually most people do it in the follicular phase so after their period as long as there's no blood there we can actually then send that onto the lab and they can you know give us a really full and detailed analysis of that including you know some of those opportunist bacteria that i mentioned you know can show up in there and we can see certain levels if it's low it may not be a major issue but again things like streptococcus can get out of hand if it's low in the first trimester and they can get they're not sorted within that time frame it can get a little bit more problematic in the second trimester and likewise things like urea plasma as well which again can be an issue in the second trimester and in some studies have been you know the cause of some early miscarriages as well so you know it's it's very important to get the right sort of balances and checks on things really even in pregnancy if we think everything's right and we've done everything right up until that this particular lab also you know provides support for you know programs to help people with the right kind of probiotics as well if they do have some of these issues to help support it and they've done a lot of research for the right strains for that so it's a case of you know offering 
the tests, but also some solutions around that as well. There are a few strains that have been tested for supporting and balancing out the good bacteria. Obviously, the lactobacillus family are, you know, usually named after the founders with the species as well. So it's working around which probiotics would be useful if there's something that comes up as an issue there. And I think, you know, doing a regular test for this, you know, all the way through your reproductive years, if it's available to you, is is quite a useful thing to see how healthy things are because it's the first port or or doorway, if you like, to stop all of these things happening or getting further higher up into the tubes. And, And we know, for instance, there are issues with things like pelvic inflammatory disease, which start off and then then target the fallopian tubes, for instance. And all of these things came through from you know, from the vagina initially. And often in some cases, this can happen and come from the partners as well, from the males. And they can carry this bacteria often in the seminal fluid. And I think we're really starting to look into this area of, you know, bacterial growth being passed from, you know, partners really. And this is an area that's going to be sort of developing in the near future, I think, in the next couple of years. We we started looking at the vaginal microbiome probably from about 2012, and it's really starting to come into its own now. But I think, you know, passing pathobionts or, or opportunist bacteria through the seminal fluid is something that we'll start to develop and we'll start to, you know, learn a little bit more about that in, in coming years too. And we'll be hearing about the semen microbiome. Yes, absolutely. And I'm looking forward to that being offered as a test as well, because I know they are looking at these things all over the world, in particular in the UK, as potentially what might be happening to look at why there's, you know, miscarriages happening, multiple miscarriages, or why, you know, things aren't necessarily as as well supported in early pregnancy as they could be and that it's just one more fascinating area really as to why fertility is such an important overall step and sadly one people just go straight into you know it's it's funny isn't it lots mm. of people do so much preparation for things like marathons or you know buying a new <laughs> house or weddings and straight off if people are in a couple uh, they go straight into having sex without doing absolutely any preparation whatsoever I'm so with you, Angela. It is so, like in Ayurveda, it's so important to purify. We call it bija shuddhi. Bija mm-hmm. means the seed and shuddhi is purify, like to purify the seed. Because what this is why fertility and preconception and postpartum are my greatest passions in, in clinic. Because if we can intervene now on the level preconception, that is determining that future human being's health for their whole life. This is the yeah. ultimate preventative medicine. If you know you're listening and you're hearing this before conception, you know you're so blessed. You can have such a powerful influence over your future child's life. And if you're postnatal or you're not done with having kids, that's fine as well. You know you can intervene at different times, but if we can get the earlier, the the more powerful. And so many things I want to talk about, which you said, like one was the importance. Like you said, you're interested to look at semen and it's crucial, but it, yeah, it's crucial to consider the semen. You know, us fellows, we're, we're 50%. And I think so much infertility these days, as you know, infertility is our absolute epidemics all around the world and it's just increasing and increasing. And we're not giving enough attention to the male and we're giving all the blame on the women or well, not the blame, but you know, they're the one who needs to 
fix their health. But and plus, you know, I'm not satisfied with the way that doctors are analyzing and coming to conclusions based on the same current semen analysis. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's very few urologists in the world that kind of know all these new areas and then are looking into it. I think we're we're blessed in in the UK that we have a really great urologist who kind of trains people around the world and I send a lot of my clients to him particularly now if I'm seeing something coming up in the swab that comes through the uh, vaginal microbiome with a particular bacteria here and there and I kind of think well let's investigate that a little bit further and you know see if that is an issue with the integrity of the sperm really if if there is something there that is causing an issue let's look into that and hopefully you know things will continue on that route and we'll start to then look at maybe next year or the year after the seminal microbiome and i think that will be a huge part of you know looking at the overall health of that whole process that happens and i want to um i want to bring up a, a perhaps an alternative view of you know, you're mentioning to, it's great to get these tests done throughout life, just to check on it and, and even and as well as throughout pregnancy. But, you know, also I think if, if one is confident in their health and has health guidance and is, you know, comfortable in the methods they do and they have the knowledge of how to live healthy, you know, I'm, I, I don't like people getting tests excessively because it can create some test anxiety maybe and it can Mm. also invite some diseases and you know even during pregnancy like i think people get ultrasounds too often yeah and i agree i mean the one (laughs) issue is the radiation of course but Mm. yeah i just think just testing and i think the the main stream is too much testing create inviting diseases essentially Mm -hmm. yeah i think i totally agree i think you know, I have quite a few clients that, you know, have been sort of introduced to the world of testing with me, but then have started to kind of go on and do more and more of it and often had to say, you know, look, we need six weeks for this to kind of really play out and see whether there's changes to it. I think a couple of weeks is not really going to give you much of an, e- an idea when they're testing for things. So I think, you know, we're so impatient nowadays i think you know in the modern world we want results we want answers straight away and i think you know that's often a problem with a lot of my clients they want results immediately and i think when it comes to pregnancy we have to let mother nature kind of guide us with that with you know somebody like myself or yourself to give them the guidance to help them to understand their body a bit more but not to go down that kind of you know overly testing of things i think Testing wants to see whether there's an issue and then see if there is, you know, a resolving of that issue is is useful. But over testing, I think, and like you said, Dylan, I'm not a massive fan of people ultrasounding to death the whole situation in pregnancy. I have people who literally go and get an ultrasound and I have to kind of pull them back from week six. And I'll just say, well, sometimes there's not even a heartbeat then. So, you know, it's it's just not really looking at anything at that point. And I think it's making sure that people understand that when they are going to be testing, there's going to be consequences of that, you know, introducing something or, you know, the pure radiation and also the sound really inside the placenta really and having that kind of subjected to you as a as a baby can be quite overwhelming so yeah 
hard work, isn't it? I think when you do work with clients and they start to understand their body a bit more, they find it as fascinating as you do when you first started studying and they want to know more and they get kind of addicted to that whole side of things. And it's about pulling people back and saying, let me guide you, let me help you with this mm. to understand this a bit more and support you through your journey. But you know, going it alone and testing and then feeling that something's gone wrong because you've interpreted things differently can be one of those kind of side issues that you have with clients when they get really interested in in finding out more about the body. Mm, that's beautiful. And, and just them, I think, being confident in themselves and trusting. You know, then if, of course, if you get, you got to adjust it to the client. If someone's going to be so anxious until they get the good news that your baby's all right, then, you know, let's do that. Let's re- relieve that anxiety. But I guess a, a more evolved state to be in is, you know, I'm fine. I'm confident. And just for those listening, like I used to be in the view that if everything seems good and feels good, you know, one scan in the mid, mid pregnancy. But now even my, my partner who is, in the you know health field of women's health more and more and she's de- she's you know doing postnatal uh postnatal doula as well as birthing doula she's just like no need for any <laughs> so if it feels all good like don't give that you that radiation mm. well i i did agree until i got this particular client that had strep b and it was affecting the baby's amniotic fluid And that kind of turned it around a little because if she hadn't had this scan at week 20, a second scan, she wouldn't have known that the fluid was really low and that maybe intervention was needed in terms of probiotics and potentially antibiotics. I'm not totally against the use of antibiotics. I think they're life-saving in some instances like this. Absolutely. Um, But I agree with you prior to sort of – you know, week 20, I think a lot of scanning is probably not necessary. And, you know, we just need to follow things through as they should and, and let let things take its course. But I think when you get to week 20, I think it's important to probably have one scan at least to see how things are. And then we can really sort of understand if things are working well. But then we get to kind of, you know, that stage where they have maybe a final scan and they start to say the baby's too small and then they scan them every single week. So I think it's interesting because people who haven't had loads of scans wouldn't have known that. And the babies always turn out usually in most cases, okay in the end, because they may have a different growth cycle where they kind of, you know, don't grow as well. And then they start growing, you know, on the percentile as they call it towards the end of the pregnancy. So it's just very interesting, isn't it? What, the over-scanning and the over-testing can actually do. It does raise anxiety a little. Um, sometimes necessary, obviously, with my client with an issue with streptococcus, but then in some cases it, it can cause anxiety in pregnancy too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Each individual is different. And so so the ultrasounds can, can test for bacteria like streptococcus, can it? They can't test for the bacteria, but they can see that there is a change in something like, for instance, the amniotic fluid. So what they did was they tested for UTIs and did a kind of, uh, you know, a combination of different things in that test. Mm -hmm. And they found strep B. They wouldn't normally test for that at week 20 in the UK. They probably wait until the final, but they are some progressive 
um, general practitioners that are looking into that. And the test that she sent me was very comprehensive in terms of looking for all sorts of things. So I'm glad they did at that point mm-hmm. because she didn't have any feelings at all. That you know, often some of these bacteria can actually you know start to creep in and cause problems without you being aware of it. So. Yeah, I think it just showed up the level of the amniotic fluid and said that that's unusual. And that obviously then indicated that maybe this streptococcus was causing or some form of bacteria may have been causing that issue to happen. Beautiful. Now let's go on to lubrication. In Ayurveda, just looking at the whole body, I mean, there's there's all these qualities or we call them goodness. But, you know, one typical antagonistic pair of qualities that we look at a lot is are you lubricated or are you dry and mm. this can be brain like where lubrication is good for mind and the dha the fat in the brain or there's the dryness which can cause neurological degeneration lack of the synapses to be able to connect due to that lack of lubrication it can mean the joints you know could cause joint issues the gut the digestion constipation more gas and of course the reproductive tissue which in ayurveda we call shukra it is is important to be well lubricated and that lubrication is like nourishment. So what's your view on that? And, and particularly looking at certain things that women may be doing that would be causing a, a not a good, uh, either too dry or too lubricated. Well, I think you, you raised a really important point there. And I think, you know, because women are so, they're not given the manual of, you know, what a normal vagina is. Often they don't even look at it, you know, until the kind of mid 20s and early 30s. So looking at the vagina and kind of understanding what a normal level of lubrication is, is quite important. And I think so often when we have consultations, it's going through that and talking to them about their vagina and how you know, things have changed over time and lubrication is very, very important. I think also, you know, smell and the kind of general presentation of that. So they call it discharge, but it would be, you know, fluid that is coming out of the vagina as well. I think that's important to understand a bit more about. And often we can change the nature of the vagina by, you know, if we feel that you know, for whatever reason that our vagina should be a certain way. You know, I know that's impressed upon lots of young girls, you know, particularly in the last 10 years, there's been an absolute kind of uh, outpouring of these kind of vaginal washes to change the smell of your vagina. I think a lot of women think the natural smell of the vagina isn't necessarily what it should be. And that changes the nature of the lubrication inside there. And it can actually then really upset the delicate balance of that lactobacillus family there. So it just breaks my heart when I go to supermarkets and I see that there's another vaginal wash there. You know, you're not necessarily meant to put anything inside there to change that because it will change the pH, which again could invite pathobionts or opportunist bacteria to then start to thrive. So for me, it's about understanding what a normal vagina is, having a discussion with the lady about that, you know, doing a smell a smell test and, and checking if there's anything that's changed there from that instance. I mean, it should have a natural musky smell, you know, and I think if the smell changes a little, the colour of the discharge changes, then definitely that's something to look into. But not to hide that and be embarrassed. I've had, you know, women who've had 
you know, bacterial vaginosis on and off for years. And, you know, that's affected their sexual relationships as well. You know, it's kind of made them say, well, I don't want to get into a relationship because, you know, that doesn't smell right and that's going to be repulsive. And, you know, it breaks my heart to think that women are kind of thinking all these thoughts to themselves on their own and thinking, you know, all these views about the vagina and not really discussing it with their friends or their family and it's taken someone like myself to actually go through that really in detail with them to help them to understand it a little bit more and to pull them away from the vaginal washes that they've been using for years in the misguided view that that's actually going to make things better or improve things and it's a very kind of allopathic approach to things really I think isn't it just kind of let's make it smell different let's make it smell like you know fruity and whatever else but it's not meant to smell like that that's not a natural smell and also if you change the ph by using something soapy inside there then that is going to you know really upset the natural balance of things and cause things to exacerbate on particular things like bacterial vaginosis Mm, just on the the note of soap like i you know i'll just share kind of being a bit open here but like even me as a as a man you know it wasn't until really probably my early 20s that I actually started washing my my anus my rectum like before I was you know as a lot of men are like scared to touch it or go in there and I I think that's an absolutely hygienic thing that everyone should be doing Mm. you know of course you know cultures like Asia every time they go to the toilet they do that and you know and yes, now I'm, they do. For example, yeah. doing it in the shower. I don't do it every time, but I do use water to wash. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's one thing that people, you know, <laughs> should be doing, mm-hmm. not just using toilet paper only, because mm-hmm. you're not probably washing. And I, you know, recommend doing it with soap, even daily. But what would you say? So you, it, it seems like soap, even if it's a natural soap. Mm. It wouldn't seem good for a woman to wash her vagina with soap every day because soap is is drying. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, yes, and we get onto the fact of, you know, often my friends laugh at me talking about pubic hair because I I do like to talk about this because I think this is quite important. People are now completely getting rid of that and that soaks up some of the sweat around that area. And, you know, if you're completely devoid of that, you can then, you know, have nowhere for that to go. And I think that's where you should wash if you do have pubic hair. Obviously, washing that particular area with soap is important because that's where sweat happens. And that's often where that musky smell comes from, really. It's the sweat around that area mingled with, you know, some of the secretions. So it's about washing that on a regular basis. But just inside the vagina, just using, you know, warm water is the only thing you need to. And I think, We know that as parents, when we have newborns, you know, we don't wash them with soap for, you know, up to six weeks when they're first newly born because, you know, the skin is a delicate organ and it's very much like that for the vagina as well. So I think the difference between men and women, obviously, is that, you know, very small space between the anus and the vagina and the perineum there that can sometimes transfer things like E. coli across and that can cause some issues further in the vagina for UTIs and stuff like that happening. But I think like you said, if you do wash that area with soap, um, make sure that you don't necessarily wash up in there in the vagina with lots of soap, Mm -hmm. because again, that can change the nature of how the vagina is a self-lubricating, self-washing, if you like. It does need just fresh water. 
you know, and warm water there. And I think that's the best way to clean it, really, not kind of, you know, shooting these horrible kind of vaginal douches and using that. I mean, that can also be cultural as well. You know, if you work with people from lots of different cultures around the world, they're used to using douches as well. They think clean out the vagina and that's a, you know, a ritual that they do prior to weddings and things like that. And I think it's just you know, where this has come from and how this is kind of continued. It's it's not necessarily an old thing that's been passed down the generations because it's a fairly new thing to use things like douches to control the odour of the vagina or think that it needs washing out or it needs something there. It isn't, you know, it's one of the most self-cleaning areas of the body. So just using warm water and a bit of soap on on that area further up is is probably the best thing you can do in. Yeah, and even during every time going to the toilet, even for urination, especially if someone's prone to frequent UTIs, urinary tract infections, be wise to just get some water and, and rinse their plain water. Yeah. And so did you say the importance of pubic care is that it absorbs the sweat? Is yes, there any other it does. things that yeah. it helps with? Yeah, and I think that's important because the sweat's got nowhere to go, you know, after that. And I think that's also a, a very important part of sexual attraction as well. The smell of that person is, and the pheromones are actually, you know, encapsulated in the pubic hair as well. So, mm. you know, having no pubic hair and then having pubic hair, you notice a difference in the smell there and in terms of that that natural smell that the person has really and that attraction to the other person really is there. Yeah, just in case you listening weren't aware, but the way we become sexually attracted to someone, one of the methods is is on a subtle layer that you may not be aware of is, is literally the smell. And there were studies done with people who go on the contraceptive pill. One of the side effects was that you have an altered sense of smell or altered sense of particularly picking up on that subtle smell that sexually attracts you to other people. And there's a study where like, and I've asked a few patients about this, like, um, mm. who have been divorced the study was like yeah once you go off the pill you break up with your partner or divorce them because you got together while you're on the pill so you almost had a false attraction <laughs> altered mm. by the pill mm. crazy yeah um, absolutely and and, and I think- this, got divorced <laughs> and like by any chance have you been on the pill the whole time you know prior to your divorce and then you recently got off it <laughs> yeah a few times and i think happened. the smell you can definitely smell your partner and you can smell it and they did that Mm. with a test as well with the t-shirts didn't they and they got women and men you know in a group and just said can you recognize the smell of your partner just have buy t-shirts and that pheromone smell that attracts you to them you can smell that on on clothes you know so there's definitely a smell element in that and using your senses really and that's all part of that sexual attraction and i think you know it's a fashionable thing, you know, really with pubic hair, isn't it? It's come in and out of fashion, mm. you know, even during, you know, a couple of hundred years ago, people didn't have them. But I think it was started initially because, you know, generally you could spread more sexually transmitted diseases and, you know, things like, you know, all sorts of things lived in the pubic hair. So they got rid of them. But now we're a lot more healthier. And I think it's just part of the way we are. We are kind of obliterating all our, our, um, foibles really shall i say with um modern living really and if you also don't have pubic care will like that sweat get into the vagina and potentially cause some it won't necessarily cause an issue there but i think it does mean that you are a little bit more sweatier down there all the time so when 
you have pubic hair and when you don't, you notice a difference in terms of the sweat level, really, and how much that pubic hair actually soaks up that sweat. And yeah, it's it's definitely a preference thing, but it also is rooted in, in you know, that attraction side of things as well, really. Mm, yeah. Okay. I'm aware of your time, but there's a few more things I want to touch on. One, you keep saying that, you know, the vagina is the gateway to the body and to, of course, the other aspects of the reproductive tract. That's definitely, I agree with. Also, Ayurveda says the reproductive system is also like the essence of the rest of the body. It's even said that the reproductive essence, which can, you know, be sperm in a male or ovum in a female, particularly at the time of conception, when they're, you know, giving out these seeds and the, and the egg for women, it's the essence of coming from all over the body. Like every, each and every cell of the body gets involved in that process. And the essence, which we call rasa, this, this rasa is, the, is an onomatopoeic sound of the essence of all the cells and all the body organs and all the tissues, they come to that reproductive area and secrete. And in this way, the reproductive tissue is a byproduct of what's going on in the rest of the body. And when you were talking about the smell, and, and this is not just during conception or having a baby, this is just in general, what's the smell? What's the bacterial load? Like I see that as well as an indicator of what's going on in the rest of the body because that refined byproduct of the physiology is expressed in the reproductive tract. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think from a Western perspective, the amount of energy that's expended in the body to get that golden egg sometimes, you know, through the female, it's just huge. You know, the whole event is leading up to that. You know, it's it's a game of two halves, if you like, really sort of you ovulate mid-cycle and then it's about kind of nurturing in that second half. So I, I also think about IVF and how some people are, are, you know, pushed to produce almost 12 months worth of eggs in, in 14 days mm. and how that can actually really draw on the energy of the person and how there's often very little preparation that people go into with IVF. And I think it almost needs more preparation than it does from a natural perspective because you're drawing on all that energy to produce 12 months of, of you know, trying to get as many eggs as you can in that 12-month period in, in 14 days because that's how long it takes, you know, to go through that whole stimulation process to start harvesting the eggs. So, wow. you know, for me, it's all about, the energy and like you said you know really beautifully there Dylan it's it's a very important thing you know every cell in your body is is working towards that and often that's why your digestion is better mid-cycle you know your tummy is flatter everything is working much more efficiently because it's almost like it said let's you know pull back all the gates let's let everything work really well at this point because we don't want any blocks in the way we want things to work you know to get prize really in terms of pregnancy yeah beautiful love it and and especially the consciousness state of that it will really pull that essence from all the cells so that's again the importance of conscious conception in the mind and then we you know we, we do so much deeper things we also align it with astrology you know, of course, ovulation time is the most important, but mm. you know, not to do on full, uh, not to do on new moon. And then there's even some specific things according to there. We can look at their unique 
astrological chart and see where, when will the planets support them. I'm getting into all the subtle aspects of the physiology, but yes. And I recently came across this with a patient. I, I don't know how new it is, a form of contraception called Fexi gel. Do you know much about this? No, I don't actually. You have oh, to wow. give me some yeah, more I, information on that one. Yeah, I, and that's I, brand I, new. I, and I, I always like to find this out in terms okay. of, you know, doing research. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know what? I literally this week uh, or last <laughs> week, I heard it from a patient the first time and I didn't even research it much because I was just going to ask you. But I, I, <laughs> the little thing I heard is it's, it's a, you know, it's a contraceptive gel which you apply to the vagina and I believe it alters the pH to wow. not allow contraception to occur. And yeah, yeah, don't like the sound of that. So it's fascinating, isn't it? We put all this effort into women and we only produce one egg and men have got. The, the ability to impregnate, you know, so many women in one go. And it's like, it's insane, isn't it? And I think when you think about the trials we had for the pills and this, the side effects and how awful that was and that still went ahead. And then they did the pill for males and they stopped the trial because the side effects were too bad. You know, it just it just always makes me laugh this, you know, this there's always a new contraception coming out for women. And I think we've got it all wrong. I think we should be doing it the other side. It should be men, you know. But when we look at the whole perspective, if there's an issue with an imbalance of the female hormone in particular and things like FSH and estradiol, you know, that's almost accepted. That's fine. We'll try and fix that. But if we said to a male, this is going to really alter your male hormones, this is going to make you have, you know, a totally different approach to life and everything, then I'm sure there'd be a much bigger outcry, I think, if it came to men doing that same thing, saying we're going to do something that turns off your testosterone for a month or changes this or changes that. And that's probably why it's never really kind of taken off, really, the, the male pill or some form of gel that, that, you know, stops that happening or, you know, something that works more towards the male than it does the female. And it's it's absolutely nuts, I think, kind of, you know, medicating women when they produce one egg. You know, there's a possibility of one egg being fertilised, but men can actually fertilise so many, many women. You know, it, it just makes no sense to me, really. <laughs> yeah, there is, of course, the vasectomy, which I'm not a fan of at all. And yeah, we've got a yeah. we've got a lectures coming up on men's health and and the urinary system, and we talk about that there. It's quite final, isn't it, the vasectomy? And often when I've had clients who've had a reverse vasectomy, there's been a lot of scarring and scar tissue, and that's caused problems. So I think you know we we have so many more options available than vasectomy as a, an end game, really, for men. But it hasn't really been explored. But mm-hmm. you know, for me, I'm more about let's look at the cycle let's work together let's Mm. tailor this for the person and the couple rather than these very kind of drastic measures of take a pill to stop something or let's cut off you know the possibility of you know the sperm getting there through the main channel you know it's it's just these kind of extremes really that we're still dabbling with in modern science really where we could actually go back to you know, older wisdom around that and and how we've been taught to understand our bodies, which, you know, comes from many, many generations past, really. Mm, uh, Yeah, I wanted to ask you what what you use. And we've done a whole podcast on every, not every, but exploring multiple contraceptive methods and then showing the pros and cons. And we've talked about in other episodes, but I wanted to ask, so you you mentioned, you know, natural fertility tracking and becoming aware of your cycle. Is that Mm. 
I mean, is that enough for you to give to a patient in general? Yeah, I mean, in my well, field, it's not necessarily con- using it for contraception because often they have problems conceiving in the first place and it's getting yeah. the body to that point where they do. But I use things like cervical fluid to work at, you know, exactly where they are in the cycle. We use temperature as well. We use a tracking method called Ovusense, um, which generally can take the board the core body temperature but some people you know just want to kind of look at old versions of you know how they can actually do that and they have family help with that you know they may have had some you know grandmothers or or their parents or their aunties that can actually you know give them advice on what they did for tracking mm. the cycle um, yeah. i know my parents use the the good old temperature method you know i had a conversation with that when i first started doing this and i had absolutely no idea my dad told me um my mom was a bit embarrassed about that but my dad definitely told me that they planned us using you know checking the temperature and putting the temperature down on and working out when my mom was most fertile so there's definitely old school methods that people used that have been using for for many many generations and also using the you know fertility awareness is there's a whole you know section of of people that are doing that and are teaching people and have been you know through different religious practices as well for years you know catholics have used this this method for contraception or also for conceiving as well so it's been used for a long long time and it's about you know, just updating it for the modern era to see whether we can use temperature gauges and things like that that can help us to understand our bodies much more. And I think at the end of the day, if we can do that, that's going to help us to kind of say, well, wow, aren't we doing some amazing things? Or if things aren't right, let's look at how we can change that. Yeah, and the modern technology is adopting these methods and creating what seems to be very high success rates and they've, they've done studies on them, certain devices. So check them out. Mm. yeah cool i just wanted to mention just while we're on this top just while i'm on this podcast which is relevant we actually we give a medicated ghee for the vagina which we have two we have one for fertility which kind of enhances Mm. the microbiome and we have another one which is actually called my teachers who make it they called it ph ghee and it's (laughs) a ghee that regulates the ph and it, 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 if it needs to increase, it, it increases. If it needs to decrease, it decreases it. And that oh, can wow. be done either just massaged in, just with your fingers, or what we do is we dip it in a tampon. We dip a tampon in, and, and I'm not a fan of tampons during the period, mm-hmm. but during outside of the period, then it's okay to stick things in the vagina, but not during mm-hmm. the period. And what we do is, and again, not during the period, we especially during a treatment, when we're doing these specific body treatments, working on the, the pineal gland and pituitary gland and the hypothalamus, these mind treatments, which one treatment is called shiradhara. At the same mm-hmm. time, we, we get them to do this, what we call yoni pichu, which is administrating this ghee in the yoni, in the vagina, and, and that enhances the brain-uterus connection, and as well as we can do it, the women can do it themselves overnight. They just leave it in or, or for half the night. I, I, I'm going to send you some some of this ghee, Angela. You can give it a go. Excellent. I'm definitely it. up for that, Dylan, because yeah. I guess that's very similar to inserting vaginal probiotics in a way. It's the right mm-hmm. species, and that's what a lot of my clients do if they have an imbalance there of bacteria that needs to be corrected. It's it's a very similar thing. So obviously that's come from you know other generations, and it's been interpreted in in a modern way through you know sort of 
isolating those particular strains. And obviously with the ghee, you know, that there, there's something there with that. Yeah, yeah. And again, like this yoni ghee or, or the other one, we call it special fala ghee or special fertility ghee. It's, again, <laughs> yeah. like the difference between, you know, a probiotic is it's just working on the environment. We're not giving these particular strains, but we just make it more happy and it can regulate Excellent. itself. And then we that have sounds some brilliant. I'm definitely up for that, Dylan. Okay. Yeah, for sure. So beautiful. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And oh, another thing I wanted to add, just to share some Ayurvedic wisdom on the topic, is is the smoking. We do fumigation with some uh, or some coal. We'll put some resins, herbal resins, and that will create smoke. And they can, you know, the women can squat over that and allow mm. the fumes to disinfect, or even sit baths with certain herbs. So yeah. there's some other things we do. So beautiful. This is really nice. Um, if someone wants to, you've got an awesome ebook on your website for free called Fertile Ground and mm. Boost Your Fertility, The Natural Solution. And it's, yeah, it's just, again, as we both said, it's so important to just, if you're planning, like really do as much as you can to optimize your health and your fertility. And it's not just fertility, health is not just having a child. It's really the, the essence of your health. So check out that on, on Angela's website, which is? It's www.fertileground-nutrition.com. Okay, beautiful. And if someone wants to work with you as a patient, what's the best way to do that on the website? They Is there can a form? probably get in touch with me via Instagram. Um, that's the best way. That's where I spend most of my time really putting posts together and replying to people. They can also come through my website. I'm in the process of changing my website at the moment. So I think mm -hmm. the best way to get in touch for the moment is probably through my Instagram account, which is at Fertility Nutritionist. And that's the best way to to get in touch. And I will be yes. changing over also the ebook to the new website soon. So if you do come to the podcast later on in the year and looking for the website, please go to my Instagram account and you'll be able to find it through there. Beautiful. And there's wonderful nuggets of wisdom and she loves seeing stories of your patients getting pregnant and all these things. It's really <laughs> nice. Yeah. Okay. That's always, yeah. It's amazing when that happens because people get in touch with me straight away and share the news at the same time as they do with their partners. So it's really exciting. Yeah. Or if they oh, don't have a partner, they're sharing it with me directly. So that's good. It's the, it's the best because, you know, these patients, that's all they want. They'll do anything. Like you could be that, you could be the richest person. You could have all your best friends, whatever you want, but they, they can't conceive in that. That's just this true desire, their, their true mm. craving. I, yes. I want to ask you one more question, which I forgot to ask, if we could just mm. touch on it quickly, is you working with IVF patients. Sometimes yes. I get, and even this week, I had someone who's like, I'm getting IVF in, what was it? I think I'm starting the, the drugs in two weeks. Mm. I'm like, okay, I'm going to load you up with herbs and treatments and really optimize <laughs> health in your nervous system. Like, I'm going to go hard because I want you to be completely pacified. I mean, working more and more with IVF as it's becoming more and more popular, and I think it's projected to be an absolute booming industry. Mm. So, yeah, what, what's your, your general approach? I mean, I haven't had any success with people working less than about eight weeks with them prior to IVF. I just think it becomes really rushed and an afterthought. And it's kind of like they think, oh, I should really have thought about nutrition. And they've got to that point, you know, where it's it's important to think about these things. And it's it just, for me, it says a lot about the preparation for bringing 
a little one into into the world even when they're an embryo you know so I think it's always really important to give yourself a little bit more time if you are going to be going down an IVF cycle or that's your route the earliest I normally like to work with people to do that preparation is probably around eight weeks and I just think any sooner than that it just becomes really rushed and it can be a sort of shock to the system to change diets and lifestyles and all those kind of things when you're also preparing for IVF which is going to be an incredible amount of stress and strain on the body and I think some people sail through IVF but that's usually if they've been well prepared and they've had you know the right diet and they're you know, working through exercise and they're working with another practitioner to help them to deal with the emotional kind of side of things with IVF. So for me, when I get people that say I'm starting IVF in three weeks, I just kind of get back to them and say, I'm happy to help you if you do get pregnant. But it's really difficult to jump in there with a couple of weeks preparation, just because the expectations are so high. And if it doesn't work, it just becomes, you know, really problematic for both me and them just because there's not been enough time to prepare so I always say if you are listening to this and you are thinking of going down the IVF route and you've started those conversations you can control that yourself you know the IVF clinics often push you along that conveyor belt and say right well let's start it as soon as your period starts next month and I think you know, you can control that. If you want to give your baby the best start in life, like you so beautifully said originally, uh, Dylan, at the beginning of the interview, the best thing you can do is say, okay, I'm going to now start working with a practitioner who can help prepare me. And I'm going to maybe get in touch with you in a month or two months time or three months time, ideally, because that gives us enough time to really work together to do that preparatory work and just to support the liver because the liver is going to be under so much stress, you know, when you're going through that to help produce the amount of follicles that you're going to be producing with the stimulatory drugs. So for me, IVF is it does need even more preparation than it does naturally just because your body will be under a lot of stress and and the energy of the body will be quite low as you're going through that process. Yes, but Angela, I'm in my early 40s. I don't have time to wait. (laughs) I get that a lot as well. But again, I've had successful pregnancies all the way through to 45. But I do get a lot of people that say, I haven't got enough time. And I think, you know, Women have had a huge number done on them with, you know, age, with, you know, not being able to conceive, with, you know, issues all along the way. And I think we can pull it back. We can work with this because if you've had some conception issues, then that could be down to some other systems that need correcting. In most cases, that's the case. And if we work on that, then things start to flow a bit easily. So, If you are in your early 40s, that's my demographic. You know, most of the women that come to me are in their early 40s. And I do, in most cases, convince them to give me a couple of months to work on that. And in in a lot of cases, they've had a better result at IVF, you know, in their mid 40s than they did in their early 40s, just because they're nourishing their body and they're calming their mind. And I've supported, you know, them to work through some of the issues that they may have had around, you know, not getting pregnant naturally as well. And, you know, sort of sending them on to people as well that that I have in my kind of black book of, of people that can help them to understand what's happening and, and 
you know, that everything's going to be okay um, when they go down the IVF route and, and they're going to be supported through lots of different practitioners. It's not just about the IVF clinic. It's about, you know, holding their hands and, and supporting them through that that process. And if, you know, if it doesn't come to anything in the end, you know, they will, they can continue working with me. And that has happened in many cases as well, where it hasn't worked necessarily for IVF, but they've actually got pregnant naturally. Um, the lady that's doing my website actually had exactly that story. She went down IVF. We prepared that whole process. Everything went according to plan, but then they thawed the embryos and the the, the thaw didn't go well. Um, and they lost all of their embryos in that process. And then she actually had a bit of a break and we started working together for two months and uh, she conceived twins naturally. So mm -hmm. uh, it can work. I'm not saying it happens in every case, but I think sometimes people feeling that they have support and that everything will be supported with them through uh, emotional support and through, you know, diet and lifestyle can actually make a huge difference to changing the way that their body, you know, holds on to things and, and they can get pregnant. Beautiful. Okay. Thanks so much, Angela. I appreciate the time so much, taking time from your patients to share knowledge, not only during this podcast, but all the many podcasts you do, the Instagram posts you do. So thank you so much. And look thank forward you. To really enjoyed it, Dylan. Okay. Thanks. How good's that? For more on knowledge, you know, check out Angela's website, check out vitalvet.com.au, check out all the podcast episodes, check out Angela on Instagram, Fertility Nutritionist, all the links we have in the show notes. And if you want to buy some, you know, ghee for your vagina or your lover's vagina, you can go to vitalveda.com.au. There is the yoni ghee, which is more for regulating pH, general general nourishment and lubrication and health of the vagina. And then there is special fertility ghee, which is if you want to increase the fertility in you. And in, in fact, even that's good during pregnancy as well, if there is some vaginal dryness and you want to apply, as well as just general, even if you're past childbearing is it, it just maintains youthfulness of the reproductive organs and to so many other wonderful herbs we have under the women's health section, really the, the herbs, these geese, these oils, they're made by my teachers that, you know, really so supreme in the formulas. They're so, such intelligent formulas and the herbs that they use are really potent and unique because you can't get these herbs in the way that they're processed. And, in addition to that, other other brands that we use, we're really meticulous and we've, we've researched how they produce hygienically and, and also maintaining potency. And by the way, if you buy anything from the Vital Veda shop, 50% of all our profits are donated to those who need medicine as well as to Vedic ancient Vedic technology to increase harmony in nature, which is called Yagya, which we've spoken about Yagya, this technology. Um, Vedic, ancient Vedic technology we speak about in, in episodes with Blaine Watson on Vedic astrology so check out all that know you're contributing to a good and until next time much love